Welcome to the podcast of Grace Crossing Church, where life and faith intersect. Well, good morning, everyone. We want to welcome you to Grace Crossing Church. We are delighted to have those of you that are joining us here in person today. I see some new faces, not new necessarily to Grace Crossing, but uh, newer to joining us back here in person. We want to welcome you, want to thank you uh, for taking what probably feels like a real step here today and coming in person. We hope that we've loved you well by creating the kind of distance and kind of space and protocols that will make you feel comfortable. We also want to welcome those joining us by way of our broadcast today. We're thankful for the growing audience that God's giving us online, digitally, uh, through our service reach. And uh, this is certainly one of the gifts that God has given us here during the pandemic, is to create a new way, a new medium by which we have a chance to reach more people, uh, both in our community and beyond our community, uh, with the good news of Jesus Christ. We're so thankful that God is allowing us to do that. And speaking of this pandemic, there are also some other, I think, upsides to this pandemic, uh, some things that it's given us a chance to strengthen our muscle in and grow in. One of those things is, I think, having tough conversations with people. Uh, I think having more difficult conversations. Sometimes I I think what we're learning to do in a culture that's really weak with boundaries, we're learning how to say, um, honor the margin, you know, give me space if we feel we need that. And I think that's really a good thing. I think our culture is very weak at this, very weak at at, at talking about conflict and leaning into conflict, very weak at having tough conversations and building boundaries. And so in light of that, let me just say that Kelly is here this morning and really thankful that she gets to be with us in person here today. We found out on Friday uh, when she got her weekly blood work back that um, her white blood cell count has dropped to a dangerous level which obviously makes her much more susceptible to uh, germs and viruses and other kinds of diseases beyond what she's already dealing with. So we talked about this and we talked about what's best for her. Um, We've had to kind of readjust some of our thinking with this, but I know that it's Kelly's desire to come and be in person here as often as she can, and I want her to do that. But in order for her to do that, I'm gonna ask you to love her well by giving her and and honoring the margin with her. So if you want to love her from a distance, please, please do that. She needs that and she welcomes that. And there's nothing more she'd love to do than hug her friends and hug the people that she loves here at Grace Crossing Church. But if you'll do it at a distance, if you'll wave, ladies, if you want to blow her a kiss from a distance, virtual hugs are acceptable. Okay, there's there's things you can do to let her know you're with her, you're praying. And we really appreciate that, but I think it's really important uh, that we just honor her space and make sure that she's going to be able to slip in and slip out as she needs to, okay? Is that, is that good for us all this morning to, to do that? Well, thank you. Now, this morning we return to a, a great passage of Scripture, which has become, actually for me, one of my very favorite passages and letters in all of the New Testament. Um, it is Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, to the Ephesian Christians. It, it is a powerful and a practical book where Paul actually talks in practical ways about principles by which we can live out the Christ life here on this earth. Now, one of the very first things I do when I am studying scripture, and certainly one of the very first things I do when I'm preparing a message and a series of messages when I know I'm going to be landing in a particular book, If I actually take time to out of Ephesians and we were to outline the entire book, you could actually do it in just three words. There's just three imperatives that Paul 
gives us as a frame to the entire six chapters of Ephesians. And here they are. Sit, walk, and stand. Sit, walk, and stand. Paul actually begins the first entire three chapters of Ephesians by urging us to sit with Christ, to get comfortable in our place that God has made available to us. Contrary to what some people believe, the Christian life is not about a frenzy of activity, it's about abiding in Jesus. The Christian life is not about doing nearly as much as it is about being, finding our place, finding our identity in Christ. And that's actually what Paul says. We read it a little bit earlier, but let's revisit it. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. I pray the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. We talked about that last weekend, but here's what I want you to see this morning. And seated him at the right hand in heavenly places. Now, chapter two, verse six, here's what Paul goes on to say. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in heavenly places. This is not a futuristic verse. This is not talking about what happens after our life here on earth has ended. This is talking about the here and now. This is talking about a place that God has put us in through Jesus Christ. I've often said the redemption of God, the salvation of God, the Christian life can be summarized in this phrase. Jesus left his place, came to our place, took our place so that we could go and take his place. We actually are invited into his place. He was seated in heavenly places at the right hand of God and you and I, are right now seated with him in those same places. Now, this past year, I had the privilege of being one of the speakers at an event that I attended. And um, at this particular event, when I left the platform, I decided not to move back into my seat and go through the crowd and sit where my designated seating was because I knew I was going to be going back up uh, in a few moments and speaking again. So I... I went off to the side and I actually spotted two chairs that were flanked off to the side of the room that nobody was sitting in. I stood for a while while people were speaking and then I decided I'm going to go and I'm going to have a seat in one of those chairs that's flanked off to the side. And when I got to the chair, I noticed there was a sign on the chair that said reserved for the Honorable Governor Mike DeWine and First Lady Fran DeWine. But it was too late. I was already committed. I was already moving. I was already picking up the seat, the the, the sign off the chair when I read it. And so I sat in the seat of Governor Mike DeWine. And let me just say this. I was there seated because of someone else's position, because of the honored place that someone else had. It wasn't my seat but I was able to sit in it just for a time because it was made available, if you will, for me to sit in. 
Listen, what the scripture actually is teaching us is that very same thing, that you and I have a seat and a place in God that we've been invited to, that you and I do not deserve, we have not earned, but God made available to us. We are seated with him. But then Paul actually goes on to say the second thing in Ephesians, that we are walking, we are to walk. Once we learn to sit, then we're invited to join God in his walk. Ephesians chapter five, verses one and two. Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. There's a definite shift in chapter four all the way through chapter six and verse nine where Paul is talking about now not sitting but walking. And because we are seated with Christ we can now walk in Christ here on the earth. But let me say this. The reason that I believe some well-meaning Christians cannot and do not, not know how to love deeply and walk in love is because they've never learned to sit in God's love for themselves. Until we learn how to sit in God's love, until we learn how to be seated with Christ, we cannot walk and be imitators of God here on the earth as his dearly loved children. There will be a split. We will lack integrity. But when we learn how to sit in God's love, we then can learn also and follow him in humility in walking out God's love. And then in chapter 6, verse 10, through the end of the chapter, which is where we're focusing in this series, Paul talks about standing. Standing, sit, walk, stand. That's the book of Ephesians. In fact, four times in the short 11 verses that we're looking at in this series, four times Paul uses that word, stand. Stand. What, what God is really helping us understand here is that once we learn how to be seated and relaxed in God... And once we follow him and begin to walk, we can then stand our ground, hold our place and position when all of the circumstances and assaults of life are coming our way. And make no mistake about it, they will come. In this world, we will have trouble. But take heart, Jesus said. I have overcome the world. And so what we're invited to do is we're invited to stand our ground, take our position and hold it by God's power and by God's mighty authority. Now, Kelly and I actually heard about a mini-series, a military mini-series that we had not seen. And it seems like over the last year, a couple of different people have encouraged us or mentioned it to us. And one of the reasons they bring it up is because they said that there is a character in this real life story, in this miniseries, whose last name is Dukeman. And whose first name is William, which just happens to be my dad's name, William Dukeman. Now my dad was and did serve in the armed forces. He served in the army, but this is not him, although I don't know if it's a relative of mine. My, my, Kelly and I decided we were gonna start watching this miniseries that's actually 20 years old now called Band of Brothers. How many of you have seen Band of Brothers? Listen, the whole story 
right, is about standing the ground, is about taking positions, is about doing what the orders have been given to do in that military conquest and standing firm in the midst of assault, in the midst of battle. Now, let me remind you of the, the main premise of our series. The main premise of equipped is this. I am fully equipped to step into the arena and meet the demands of life by God's power and authority. I am already equipped to step into the arena and meet the demands of life through God's mighty power. Last weekend, we talked about that, that God has equipped us to be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Notice it's in him. And we talked last weekend about God equipping us to stand firm. Why? Because God is a firm foundation. And when we make God our firm foundation, we can stand firm through whatever comes our way. God enables us to do it. I'd also remind us that Ephesians chapter 6, the focus of it is not on the equipment. It's not on the armor of God, though it talks about it and though it's very exciting. The focus, rather, is on the equipping. The fact that we have already been given everything that we need from God to live this Christian life, to meet its demands in the Lord and in his mighty power. Now, before we even look at equipment, before we even talk about the armor of God, it's really critical that we understand why we are given this equipment. In other words, what is the purpose for which the armor of God has been supplied to us? Well, Paul actually goes on to tell us the answer to that in Ephesians chapter 6, verse number 11. Put on the whole armor of God. Let me, just, let me just pause here for just a moment. Paul actually uses, it's one of his favorite phrases, those, that phrase, put on. He, he, in several of his letters, talks about putting on. And what Paul is actually getting at with this is that this is nothing that we manufacture. It's not something that we conjure up. We don't have to create it. It's already there for us. And all we've got to do is ease ourselves and step in to that which has already been provided for us. Literally, it means to clothe yourself. To clothe yourself. And when Paul says put on, it appears in the present active tense, which literally means this isn't a one-time event. It's not something you do once and never think about again. Paul is saying not once in a lifetime, but moment by moment, day by day, keep coming back and arming yourself with the equipment that God has provided. This is not our equipment. It's not our armor. It is God's armor. And Paul actually goes on to give some clarity to what this looks like and why this is so important. In another letter he writes to the Corinthian church, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, 
Here's what Paul says in verses three through five. We do live in the world. We do live in the world. But we do not fight the same way the world fights. In case you have not noticed it, we are very much living our life out in a place that is not our permanent home. But as we live here, what Paul is suggesting very clearly is that the way that we're going to live this life out, the way that we're going to have to do our spiritual battles, is not going to be the way the world does it. And then I want you to pay attention to Paul's language because it's pretty profound. He goes on to say this, we fight with weapons that are different from those the world uses. Our weapons have power from God that can destroy the enemy's strong places. And here they are. We destroy people's arguments. And every proud thing that raises itself against the knowledge of God. We capture every thought and make it give up and obey Christ. Can I tell you where the greatest battles of our life are fought? The greatest battles of our life are fought here and here. They're fought in our minds, in our thoughts. And the way that you view the world and the way that you view the conflicts we see in the world are really important. That's really what Paul's getting at here. I can tell you that, and all of us can identify with this, that sometimes our thought life takes us places we wish it wouldn't take us. I can tell you that since Kelly's cancer diagnosis, I've had a daily battle with my thoughts. My thoughts take me places I wish they wouldn't. Thinking thoughts I wish they wouldn't. And though I never want to deny the reality I live in, I want to hold intention reality with faith. And faith that says I can look at reality and can bring God in the middle of that. Well, let me tell you, there is a stronghold in our minds if we're not careful that we have got to bring God in and we do not fight that on our own battle, our own strength, our own abilities. It's not our armor, it's God's. But we have got to be vigilant to do it. Paul doesn't say, We live in the world, but God fights the battles for us. No, he says, you live in the world, but you don't war. You don't fight like the world fights. And that brings us to this morning's really critical big idea. And I don't want you to miss this one because it's so profound for what we're talking about in this series. Here's the big idea today. We do not fight for victory. We fight from God's victory. We do not fight for victory. That's not what the scripture teaches. What the scripture teaches is that we fight as followers of Christ. We fight in and from God's victory. The one that's already been won. Now, I can tell you that that word victory has been really misused at times in the Christian church. 
I, I grew up, um, my spiritual upbringing included a steady diet of songs and sermons about living in victory. And whether it was intended or unintended, I came to believe that victory meant that my circumstances would resolve in positive ways. That the outcome would always be what I want it to be. That that's victory. That somehow if I pray enough, if I have enough faith, if I trust God enough, certainly God will resolve everything just the way I would want him to. And I don't think that's at all what victory is about. I think the victory that we are promised through God is not the victory of getting what we want. It's the victory of getting what God knows we need and what God knows is best for us and what God knows is outflow of his goodness toward us. And you and I, whenever we try, and I can tell you from personal experience, whenever I try to fight for victory, I am fighting a losing battle because my position is wrong. I must fight from God's victory that says from the very beginning, I'm an overcomer. I can't lose this one because God's already done everything I've needed and he's provided and equipped me with everything that I would ever need or hope for as I walk this life out. So it's really important we understand this. And then let's go back and see what Paul says is the reason we should put on the whole armor of God. Let's go back to verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God. Now here's the purpose. Here's the big why. So that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Have you ever wondered what it is? Have you ever wondered what the schemes of the devil are? Let me set it up this morning by giving you just a very short clip from one of my top 10 movies of all time. It's not a Christian movie, but it's filled with spiritual undertones. It's a movie that was released in 1999 called The Matrix. And in this particular scene, Morpheus is actually bringing Neo into what the matrix is. And I think his verbiage and his comments and his insights are really spiritual in some ways about what we are dealing with and talking about this morning. Take a look at the scene. Do you want to know what it is? The Matrix is everywhere. It is all around us. Even now in this very room. You can see it when you look out your window or when you turn on your television. You can feel it when you go to work, when you go to church, when you pay your taxes. It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. What truth? That you are a slave, Neo. Like everyone else, you were born into bondage, born into a prison that you cannot smell or taste or touch. A prison for your mind. 
I said it last weekend, but it bears repeating. Not everything we see and experience is as it appears. There is a spiritual world that is more real than the world that we are temporarily residing in. And there is this sense that something in this life as we've entered it is wrong. Something isn't right. But it's not our natural five senses that can actually experience it or understand it. That's why in this series I began with praying the eyes of our understanding be enlightened. Because without that, I said, we have no hope. We have no hope of understanding, comprehending, and then really metabolizing the power of what God is telling us and giving us and offering us when he tells us we're fully equipped. Now, when the scripture here uses that word schemes, it actually in the original language is a word that means methodology. So literally, this is the methods that the devil employs in our battle that we walk and live here on this earth. Another way that that word schemes can be appropriately translated is well-crafted trickery. Well-crafted trickery. My daughter Ashley was in town a couple of weeks ago and she was helping Kelly go through some boxes and some stuff in our, in our storage area. And she found a box that I have not seen in years and I didn't even know we still had it. She goes, Dad, do you know what this is? And the box was closed. I said, no, I don't. And she, she opened the lid and she goes, do you remember this? Looking at it, I didn't even realize what it was at first. And she goes, Dad, these are all of the tricks that you used to use with us when we were kids. And I remember, Dad, you pulling out this box and, and, and gathering the kids and then you would do some illusory trickery to try to get us to believe that you were doing some kind of like special magic or something. I had no idea that we even still had the box. When you think of this word schemes, think of that word. It is about the enemy trying to deceive us to believe something that isn't true. These schemes are the ways the enemy tries to lie to us or to convince us that God doesn't really care about us, or to tell us that we know what's best for our life and not God, to tell us that what God says in his word cannot be trusted here on this earth. And what we've got to understand is that the enemy is constantly employing these schemes in an attempt to get us to fold our Christian life, to lay down God's arms and armor, to catch us in vulnerable places and in vulnerable positions. Now, one word of caution before we unpack this a little bit further this morning. The devil is not under every rock you overturn, okay? I mean, there are some people that push truth beyond its intended meaning, and that's error. And error is any truth that is pushed too far. The Bible does not teach that every problem you have in life is because the devil has been on attack with you. It doesn't mean every time you're tempted, the devil is at your back trying to get you to fall. In fact, the Bible says we're tempted when we're dragged away and enticed by our own desires. So, so let's keep this in balance this morning. 
For us to make it all about the devil would be very wrong. For us to ignore there is a devil would be very wrong. There is a truth in this that we've got to find balance in. Listen, make no mistake about it. You have a God who loves you. He's fighting for you. He is on your side, but you also have an enemy that doesn't want to see you with God. He would prefer you did not live your life for Jesus. And so this morning, what Paul does is Paul says, we got to put on the whole armor of God because in doing that, we are able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And then verse 12, here's what he says they are and how they work. Ephesians chapter six, verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Let me pause. Let me pause before we go on. I was a wrestler in high school. I knew what it was like to have blood and flesh conflict. I knew what it was like to walk into a mat, to know your opponent only by name, but not necessarily know who you were coming up against, not knowing their skills, not knowing their abilities fully. In those days, there were no, you weren't watching uh, matches that were previously done learning techniques of how to wrestle against your opponent. Wrestling is all about flexibility. It's about leverage. It's about positioning. And can I also tell you, it is about trickery. It's very much about making your opponent believe you're going to go a direction you're not going to go and giving you an advantage to take them to the mat, to wrestle them to, 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 the, to the mat, and ultimately, hopefully, win by pinning them or beating them on points. Now, what Paul says is this. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. So let me just, let me just put this in very simple terms for, you, for us this morning. Your enemy is not your spouse. Your conflict is not with your neighbor. Your difficulty is not with that employer that you think isn't fair to you. Or that coworker that always annoys you. That you just don't, you don't mix with their personality. That's not your enemy. That's not who you're wrestling against. Your enemy is not the person on the other side of the political aisle who disagrees with your positions, disagrees with your philosophy. It's not the person who feels a certain way about the racial unrest that we've been dealing with and facing in our country, not in 2020, but for hundreds of years. That's not our enemy. What Paul goes on to say very clearly is, this is our enemy. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So Paul lists them as rulers, as authorities, as cosmic powers over this present darkness. He says these are the things, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. This is our enemy. Other places in scripture actually refer to these as the principalities and powers of this present age. 
So think of it this way, where there is a power and influence that comes from the presence of God, there is also a power and influence and authority that comes from the presence of Satan. God has a will for your life, so does the enemy has a will for your life. And these powers and principalities are actually influences and powers that come from an origin, from a place called Satan, a created spiritual being. And here's the thing about all of these powers and authorities and spiritual forces of evil. They are spiritual beings that have asserted their independence of God. They've rebelled against God and they've said, listen, we don't want to follow your rule, your leadership. And so the question this morning is, what is their purpose? Why do they exist? Instead of going into each term and word, which we certainly can do, and I did it in my study, what I can tell you is this. There are at least three things that you should know about these principalities and powers of the present age that are warring against us and against more than us. Listen, they are not warring against you. They are warring against the life of God in you. There is a battle that's not about you and me. It's about the life of God on the earth in us. And there's three things you can rest assured that the enemy and that these powers and principalities are at work to do. First, they exist to incite us to join them in our independence of God. They exist to incite us to join them in their independence of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse number 4. Satan, notice this, who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They are unable to see the glorious light of God's good news. They don't understand the message about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God. So what is Satan about? He's ultimately about keeping the truth from us, keeping us living in a lie, believing that we can be our own savior, believing that our goodness can get us to heaven or put us in right standing with God in some way. It is all intended to cause us to think a way that is not God's way. And listen, make no mistake about it, the enemy's plan is to get us, because he hates the life of God in us, is to get us to move to a place where we begin to question God and question God's goodness. We begin to live our life outside of God and outside of God's authority as though we don't need it. We don't need to know what God thinks. We don't need to submit our life to God's authority and rule. And so Satan blinds the minds. Never be upset at the person who chooses not to believe in Christ as though it's flesh and blood. There's a reality. There's something behind their disbelief that we know is spiritual in nature. And so we don't wrestle flesh and blood. We wrestle principalities and powers. Which is the second thing I think you can, you can rest assured from Scripture that these principalities and powers of the present age are doing. The second thing is they are attempting to get our mind off of the things of God and focus our attention on us. 
If, if he can get us, if the enemy can get us to shift our attention off of God and onto us, he's got us right where he wants us. And I'll even add this. The enemy would love to get your attention off God and onto him. That's another mistake. We need to remain seated in God, seated in Christ. We need to keep walking out our faith in him. So there's an interesting exchange Jesus has with Peter in Mark's gospel, chapter eight. Very insightful. Here's what it says. He, Jesus, began to teach them, notice, that the son of God must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. He told them in very clear, uncertain words. Uh, uh, you, can't, you can't argue with what he was saying. He was so clear. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Man, I would not have wanted to be in Peter's shoes on that day. Can you imagine? What I don't think the scripture tells us here is what Peter, what first of all motivated Peter, why he went to him. Was it the fact that Jesus was going to, to suffer many things? Did that, is that what disturbed him? Was it the fact that he was going to be rejected? Was it the fact he was going to be killed? And then what were the disciples saying? Because I find it interesting that Jesus turns and looks at the disciples before he addresses Peter. I suspect Peter went and said, hey, there's some of the guys, they're really concerned, right? They're really upset, Jesus, about things you're saying. Those guys, I'm telling you, they don't like what you're saying right now. I don't think Peter was a man. I don't think he owned it. And I think Jesus knew it. And Jesus also knew there was something behind his words that were not of this earth. So what does he do? He looks at Peter in the eyes, but he speaks beyond him. He speaks beyond him. He speaks to the powers and principalities that were motivating his thoughts to get him off of the thoughts of God and onto thoughts about himself. What was in his best interest? Certainly Jesus dying was not in his best interest. And then one final thing I think you should see is that ultimately I think these principalities and powers are seeking to keep God's good work from coming to earth. When Jesus prayed, what Jesus said was this, pray your kingdom come and pray God your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Why do you think Jesus told us to pray that? It's because there was something from keeping the kingdom of God from coming and the will of God from being done. Jesus told us to pray because he knew that there is a force at work that is desiring to keep the activity of God, the life of God, from coming into our hearts and our lives. So in the Old Testament, there's a story in Daniel when Daniel the prophet was praying and he was praying that God would answer a prayer for 21 days. He prayed and he fasted. And the heavens were brass. He's not hearing anything from God. He's wondering if God's even hearing his prayer, if he's forgotten. And then finally, he gets this angelic visitation. And here's what the angel says to him. Daniel chapter 10, verses 12 and 13. The angel says, don't be afraid, Daniel. 
Since the first day, notice this, since the first day you began to pray for understanding and to humble yourself before God, your request has been heard in heaven. If you wonder if God hears your prayers, my good news to you today is this, God hears every prayer you pray. Every time you lift up your heart to God and you humbly present your request to God, God's hearing it just like he did Daniel. But notice what happens. I have come in answer to your prayer, he said. But for 21 days, the spirit prince of the kingdom of Persia blocked my way. Then Michael, one of the archangels, came to help me, and I left him there with the spirit prince of the kingdom of Persia. Now, what's going on here? What's going on is there is a war happening. There is a battle happening that our natural eyes can't see. Daniel's praying. Daniel's fasting. He's humbled before God. He's in every posture you'd want a person to be in. He's right with God. God heard his prayer, but for 21 days, there was resistance. And that resistance was not in the natural. There was something happening in the heavenly realms that Daniel couldn't see until the angel finally came and said, listen, here's what happened. Now, this is profound, but what we have to understand is this. What happened to Daniel is no different than what's happening as we pray today. There is a resistance to our prayers. And that resistance is not your spouse. That resistance is not your neighbor. That resistance is not what's happening at your job. There is a resistance to God's kingdom and God's will being done that is being fought and we are in a battle, but we can't see it with our natural eyes. Make no mistake about it. As we pray, God is doing his work and we can trust him for that. Because why can we trust him? Because we are not called to fight for victory. We're called to fight from God's victory. We're not called to pray in our power, our authority. We're called to pray in God's power and God's authority. We're not called to fight with the weapons of the world, not spiritual battles. There are earthly battles that must be fought that way, but you will not fight spiritual battles that way. You will only fight them. You only contend for them through the weapons that God has given to us, the equipment that God has given to us. We, friends, are fully equipped already. We have everything we need to live in God's victory. And so as we close this morning, what I, what I want you to ponder prayerfully in the presence of God today and this week Here's what I want you to prayerfully bring to God. Where have I been fighting for victory? And I sense God is inviting me to fight from his victory. That's an important shift. Where have I been trying to fix things? Where have I been trying to maneuver and even maybe manipulate outcomes or situations? Where have I been fighting for victory? And God is inviting me to fight from his victory. Trust him. Trust in what he's done. Know that God has our best interest at heart and in mind. And know that at the end of the day, his goodness will hold us. It will hold us. And whatever life may bring our way, that we can trust God for. Thanks for listening. 
To learn more about Grace Crossing Church, including service times and directions, check us out on the web at www.gracecrossingchurch.net. We hope to see you at one of our upcoming weekend worship gatherings. Have a great day.